You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. If you don't know me, then you don't know some of my quirks. One of my quirks is, is that uh, I'm kind of an internet video junkie. I mean, all of it. Wimp, Inspire More, that's a little shout out to Hunter Stensrud, uh, all of them. And I believe it all because it's on the interwebs and it must be true. Uh, this week, I, it wasn't a video, it was a story that I read. It was about a guy who wanted to divorce his wife. He had fallen in love with another woman and he had kind of grown distant and cold from his wife. And he came home one day and he sat her down at the table and he said, I want to get a divorce. And she didn't say much, which kind of surprised him. They went to bed. Uh, the next morning, uh, or the next day, he came home. He drafted a divorce agreement. He set it out before her, and he was very generous. Uh, he was giving her the house, the car, and 30% of his company. She picked up the contract and just tore it into pieces. They went to bed. The next morning, he woke up, and she had written a contract of her own. And she said he could have all the stuff. She didn't want any of it. Her only request was that for the next month, they just try to live as normal a life as possible. And one of the reasons was they had a kid whose exams were coming up, and she just wanted to keep things stable for him until the exams passed. But she also had one other request, a very odd request. It was that he remember how on their wedding day, he had picked her up and carried her out of the room in her bridal dress. And she said, so for the next 30 days, I would like for you to pick me up from our bedroom and carry me to the front door every day for 30 days. And the guy said, well, you know, I felt bad for her, and so I just, I did it. You know, it was an odd request, but I agreed. And then he writes, we were both pretty clumsy about it on the first day, but our son was joyfully clapping his hands behind us, singing, Daddy is holding Mommy in his arms. We weren't as clumsy on the second day. She leaned in on my chest and I could smell the fragrance of her blouse. I realized that I hadn't really looked at this woman for a long time. She wasn't young anymore. There were fine wrinkles on her face and her hair was graying. Our marriage had taken its toll on her. On the fourth day when I lifted her up, I felt a sense of intimacy returning. This was the woman who had given ten years of her life to me. On the fifth and sixth day, I realized that our sense of intimacy was growing again. It became easier to carry her as the days passed by. One morning, I carried her in my arms, and her hand naturally wrapped around my neck. I held her body tightly, just like on our wedding day. On the last day, when I held her in my arms, I could hardly move a step. It all became very clear to me. I had carried my wife into our home on our wedding day. And I am to hold her until death do us part. I called it off with the other woman. And on the way home, I bought a bouquet of flowers for my wife. And when the sales girl asked me what to write in the card, I smiled and I said, write this. I'll carry you out every morning until death do us part. Now, there's two kinds of people here. There's realists and romantics. And here's how you know the difference. If you're a realist, you know for certain that is not true. If you're romantic, you don't care. (laughs) And you know who you are. It's probably not true. It's a story that's made to illustrate something. Um, And it does illustrate a lot of really good things. On the one hand, there is this sober reminder that 
love can grow cold. We can drift. We can become distant with people that we once held so dearly. But on the other hand, there is this reminder that love can be awakened. It can be stirred up in such a way that it moves us to radical action. As this man gives himself away to his wife in love, even though he doesn't feel love for her, his love is awakened. The intimacy returns. It reorients himself to who he is. As, as he does this, he rediscovers his wife and his son and himself in that context, and it radically changes everything about his life. As we come to Romans 12 today, this text is meant to awaken our love for one another. It's meant to convict us of the ways that we've grown cold and drifted and not cared and stir up something inside of us that moves us to radical action in this community. The problem with love, of course, is that we tend to just make it about us. Right? We're all still defining ourselves by the love that we receive from others. We're defining ourselves by their acceptance and approval and applause. And it just doesn't work because love doesn't work that way. What Paul's going to tell us in this text is that love isn't, something, isn't about uh, what we get. It's about what we give. Romans 12 is one of the chief texts about love. Uh, you know, you've got like 1 Corinthians 13, it's very poetic, and this is kind of the, the practical sister to that text. And really what this text is all about is, is giving ourselves away to others in love. So we're just going to look at verses 9 through 13 of the text that was read. The second half of that we'll pick up next week. But in verses 9 through 13, we'll just see very straightforwardly what love is. What kind of love is Paul talking about? What does it look like to give it away? What does it look like to lose yourself in love for others? And then finally, how in the world do we do that? All right, so first, what is love? If you think of Tina Turner, that means you're old. All right, verse 9. Love must be genuine. Love must be genuine. Most of what we call love like in our language, is, is about a response to something that we find pleasure in or that gives us pleasure. So we talk about, like, we love certain kinds of food because they taste good to us. We tend to love to do things that we're good at because, you know, just being good at something feels good. Even when it comes to people, we tend to love people in a response to, to the fact that they like, like us too or that they love us too. It's a, it's a response to the way that people make us feel our love for them. And that's all actually very normal and fine. In the Greek language, they had several words for all these kinds of natural loves. But the word that Paul uses here in verse 9 is the word agape. And if you're familiar with that, you know that it's different than the other words for Greek love. It's a very distinctly Christian word. It's a divine word. In verse 9, the word is agape. It's kind of the heading for this text. And here's how it's distinct. Natural loves, all the loves that are natural to humanity, um, are about getting. But agape is a sacrificial, selfless love. It's about giving. Agape is giving love. This is the kind of love, of course, that God has for us. Earlier in Romans 5, Paul says, This is how God demonstrates his love, and that while we were yet sinners, that is, nothing in us that gives pleasure to God. We were, in fact, rebels and enemies of God. 
It was then that God sent his son to die for the ungodly. That's, how it, that's the agape, giving, sacrificial love of God. And that got worked out for us in the first half of Romans theologically, and now Paul's going to work out the applications of that in Romans 12 through 15. And it's, it's all throughout. So it's here in verse 9 in chapter 12. When we get to chapter 13 in verse 10, he'll say the same word, agape, is the fulfillment of the law. When we get to chapter 14, which is working out very interpersonal dynamics in the community, he's going to use the same word in verse 15, agape. And so this idea of, of selfless giving love governs and shapes the whole application of how the gospel works itself out in community. And we're at such a disadvantage for that because we only have this one word in, in our language, love, that we use to describe everything from ice cream to our spouses. And so it's important for us to, to get a grip or to understand what Paul means uh, and what the scriptures mean by this word agape. Uh, there's a counselor in town by the name of Chris Thurman. We've known him for a long time. Uh, great guy. He had this definition of love that I thought was really good. He said this, Love is an act of the will aimed at fostering the growth of another person. I think this gets at what agape love is. It's an act of the will, right? So it's not based upon any emotions of love that I may or may not have. And it's aimed at fostering the growth of another person. So it's not about getting, it's about giving. Agape love is all about losing myself, giving myself away for the good of others. Frederick Buechner, pastor and author, says that maybe the most powerful demonstration of this is in the tale of Beauty and the Beast, in which uh, the beauty doesn't love the beast because he's beautiful, but rather by her love, makes him beautiful. That's agape love. And we are drawn to that kind of story because isn't that our story? God, we, God does not love us because we're beautiful, but it is by his love that he makes us beautiful. We love the idea of agape love. I mean, until we realize that it means we have to love the beast. Right? So we love the idea of it, but the practice of it gets really, really hard. And I'm telling you, Romans 12, as you're going to see, is about the practice of it. It's about loving the beast. Now, whoever you just thought of, that's, that's your beast. We tend to think of love in financial terms. We tend to think of it as an investment. So I invest my love in these relationships, and, and they yield some kind of return for me. And agape love is just not like that. It's a giving away with no expectation of anything in return. And that's the challenge, because this kind of love is always in direct conflict with our own self-interests, with our love of self. That's why Paul says, let love be genuine. The word means without hypocrisy. So literally in the Greek text, it just says agape without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. The word hypocrite is taken from Greek theater. And so it had to do with an actor who would wear a mask and play a role. And they would work very hard at the role to be very convincing and compelling in it. And success for them was that they were so convincing that the audience approved and applauded and cheered. The worst scenario for an actor would be that he wasn't compelling in that role and that therefore they rejected him as such. You see, an actor 
gives himself away for the audience. Right? But at the end of the day, it's still about him, isn't it? I mean, his sense of okayness or worth or value is still tied up in their love for him. And this is what it means to be a hypocrite in our love. It, you might do loving things, but at the end of the day, if the questions that drive you are, how do I look? How do I appear? What do they think about me? Do they love me? That's hypocritical love. And all hypocrisy, the mask is a good imagery because all hypocrisy is a kind of hiding behind something. We've talked about this throughout our study of Romans, but Romans is about righteousness. It's about the, the righteousness of God that has been freely given to all who believe in Jesus. And to be right, righteous just means to be in right standing with God, to have peace with God, for all of your identity and purpose and value and worth to be wrapped up in your relationship with God. But hypocrisy taps into the ways in which we look for righteousness elsewhere. Right? So you can find righteousness, your sense of being okay in community even, in your work, in your success, in your income, in your friends, in the way you look, and what you're good at, and on and on and on. You can find righteousness in any of those things. Now, here's the problem. If your righteousness is in those things, you have to work at maintaining it, right? And, and if anybody gets close enough to see it or if it's going to get exposed, you put, you put the mask on so that they can't see it. You have to perform to maintain these false kinds of righteousness. It's hypocrisy. Even if our righteousness leads us to do good for others, at the end of the day, it's still about us. It's still about hypocrisy. So, the point is this. If you crave the approval and the praise of men and women, you won't be able to love them because you're thinking about yourself. And more than that, they can't love you. You see, the most essential ingredient of, of a relationship is the idea of truth, right? It's the real me knowing and loving the real you. And it's the real you knowing and loving the real me. It's truth. It's reality. It's what the Bible calls light, and walking in light and honesty. To the degree that we don't have that, we don't have anything like real love. And so, to the extent that you put your best foot forward, to the extent that you hide the faults in your life, polish up the outside, to the extent that you do that, that's the extent to which you are robbing people of the opportunity to love you. How in the world can they cover your wounds with love when you've covered them with deceit? Agape love demands truth and light. You don't have to be perfect to be loved. You don't have to love perfectly. The command isn't let love be perfect. It's just let love be genuine without hypocrisy. Tim Keller, a number of years ago, I heard him say that uh, there's always three subtexts in a ministry or you could even say in a conversation or in a relationship. The subtexts are these. Uh, One is, aren't we great It's not what you're actually saying. It's just what you're implying by what you say. Aren't we great? The other one is, isn't what we do great? Isn't the way we do things just awesome? And really what's underneath all that is a subtext of, aren't I great? 
you know, for being a part of something that does things so awesomely? Aren't I great for what I bring to the table to make this thing so great? And in every conversation, even just the little ones you're going to have outside today, those subtexts are at play. You're not saying it out loud. You're, you're more skilled than that. You're just implying it. It gives off a certain kind of smell. It's hypocrisy. People can smell hypocrisy a mile away. And what Paul's calling us to is one subtext, and that is, isn't Jesus great? Isn't the way that we use our gifts and the way that we love each other and the way that we even treat one another, doesn't that speak to how great Jesus is? Aren't we the aroma of Christ in our love for one another? That's what Paul's calling us to. So, love must be genuine. And then we get this little phrase that seems out of place, but actually just gives us a litmus test for genuine love. He says right after this, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Hate what is evil and cling and hold fast to what is good. Hypocritical love is driven by these subjective senses of what people think about me. Objective love, or, or genuine love, is driven by an objective reality of evil and good, bad and good. Remember, to love someone is to will their good, and so that requires us to hate some things and to cling to some things. Uh, in verse 2, we looked at a couple weeks ago, Paul said, what happens when we're renewed and transformed is that we prove the will of God, what is holy and good and acceptable. And so there are these objective things called the will of God that is good, which means there are other things that are contrary to that. And so genuine love hates anything that is contrary or opposed or that hinders or stands in the way of the will of God. And genuine love just simply means helping people do the will of God, to walk into conformity to an objective truth that is outside of us. That is, That may sound just like really normal to you, but that is very crazy in the culture that we live in. The culture we live in, and even I tend to think of this and act like this sometimes, is that to love someone just means to be supportive, to encourage them just in whatever path they're on, to be there for them. But if they're walking in a path of darkness, then love means that I alert them to that and do everything I can to pull them off of that path and help them walk in the light, to help them walk in the path of God's will. It means I have to hate certain things about their life. Not them, but things. And I have to love them enough to help them walk in the course of God's will. That's genuine love. Do you know what this means for us? It means that every part of your life is open for conversation. Things that we typically consider taboo or private, money, sex, politics, entertainment, how I spend my free time, relationships, all that stuff. Stuff that we typically think is like our business is fair game because of this. See, in a community like this, we don't hide those things, but they're just always there. It doesn't mean I have to accept everything someone tells me about those things. It just means that there aren't any topics that are off limits in my life. Now, when someone comes to you and they want to talk about that stuff, you know, because this is what people do. They hear the sermon and they're like, all right, 
got a new tool. Here I go. And so you'll be like hanging out and some guy you don't even know will walk up to him and be like, hey, uh, let's talk about your sex life. You know, be like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Or they'll say, hey, I heard you in that conversation and it just sounded like you were making it all about you. And you're like, dude, you don't even know me. I mean, that's what you're going to, you're going to feel that way. The defensiveness is going to rise up in you. And you know why? Well, one reason is that guy doesn't know you. But another reason is because you're going to feel like your righteousness is being threatened. See, when people touch those private taboo topics, the reason we're hiding them is because they expose us. We know deep down something's wrong in there, but we don't want you, them to know, and we, much less we don't want to talk about it with them. You see what that is? Hypocrisy. Hypocritical love. We need genuine love. We need relationships where our friends hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And my life is made up of both of those things. There's not a single thing I do that's not a mixed bag of motives. Right now, I'm talking to you with bad motives and good motives. And my good friends, namely my wife, knows the difference. And I need a wife, I need a woman who clings to what is good and hates what is evil in my life. We all need friends like that. So the question is, can you do this? I was in a vehicle one time with two pastors that I hardly know, older guys, and they were asking me, just questions about my life and ministry. And one of them said, hey, when do you, how do you practice Sabbath? You know, just when do you rest? And I said, oh, I try to take off kind of early on Friday, don't work on Saturday, and get back to it on Sunday at some point. And the other guy who I had never met said, no, sorry, the guy I was talking to said, uh, what do you mean you try to? And the other guy who I'd never met said, it means he's lying. <laughs> and I got real defensive. Like, no, 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 I'm not lying. No, this is when I started elaborating in details about what I was doing. Of course, I was lying. Of course, I don't do the very thing I was saying that I try to do. That's what try means. It means I don't do it. So, later on that night, I'm in the teaching session, and the guy who had exposed me was teaching. And I like, couldn't listen to a word he was saying. I was like, oh my gosh, I just lied to this guy. So, I, right afterwards, I have to go up and I have to say, hey, I got to confess something to you. You're right. I don't. I don't observe Sabbath well. I don't rest well. I lied to you about it. He goes, I know you lied to me about it. And we restored. We had fellowship. But without that, as long as I cover, as long as I get defensive and put my best foot forward, there's no relationship. What's really interesting about that is about two years later, ran into this guy in a very difficult time in his life at just some random conference. We ended up sitting outside talking for an hour, and he's telling me things that he really hasn't told anybody yet, and he's crying. I mean, it was a very low time in his life. Do you think that could have ever happened had I just been content with the front? Not ever. Let love be genuine. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Walk in the light. All right. From that foundation, from the foundation of giving love, agape love, what happens is we begin to feel things. We begin to feel love. So agape love is a decision of the will, an act of the will, whether or not the feelings are there. But when you begin to move into that, the feelings tend to follow. And that's where Paul goes with this. So that's what love is. What does love look like? And what it looks like is family affection. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I know I skipped verse 11. We're going to come back to that. The picture in these verses uh, is the picture of family love. And even though all our families are broken in some way, for the most part, it's still the place where we feel most ourselves. Right? It's still the place where we fear exposure the least because it's just, it's hard to hide from family because they're just always there, right? So they know you. And so there's something about family that just has a, a at-homeness to it. And that's what Paul is calling us to. Um, I was thinking about my family. I'm the youngest of five. There's a pretty decent age gap between me and my siblings. We live all over the country. We hardly ever see each other. And so we're not that close in terms of just like being in each other's lives. Yet, I feel some strange connection to them. Like still, whatever happens to them, it it affects me. I have deep emotional feelings for them, even though I hardly ever see them. And for some of them, I feel like I don't even know them that well. It's just, it's not about common interest. It's just they're my family. And that's what Paul's saying. Love each other in that way. Love one another with brotherly affection. The first word in this verse 10, love, is the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. The second word is from the same root. It's translated brotherly affection here, and it's very closely related. It simply just highlights the affection aspect of love. It's a word that they would use for the feelings that a mother and an infant have for each other, like when the infant is born. It's not a love that has to do with performance. It just it has to do with the fact that they belong to each other. And there's a natural, automatic, tender affection between a mother and her child. Paul is highlighting this central reality of the gospel, and that is that we are a family. Like I'm a family with my brothers, like a mother and a child, our family, and even more so. We tend to think of ourselves individualistically, but the Bible relentlessly speaks to us as a family, as a group. Uh, even uh, the command in, in verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, didn't you all read that as present my body as a living sacrifice. Certainly that's implied and included, but the command actually is present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That never crosses our minds because we just don't think of ourselves that way. But the Christian must think of himself and herself in the context of a body, a family. And here's, here's what that means for us. You don't get to choose your family. I didn't get to choose my brothers and my sisters. They didn't get to choose me, that's for sure. I don't get to choose who's in my small group. I don't get to choose who comes here on a Sunday. I mean, you can leave, but I can't leave, actually. Like, I have to stay here. There's something about that that we should take to heart. Because in our culture, my gosh, you can always bolt. You can leave friendships and marriages and churches and groups and schools, and people do it all the time, and nobody blinks an eye. Is it bats an eye? It's bats an eye. Nobody bats an eye. And so, look, I'm not saying, like, you're chained. You can't go anywhere. Maybe God will lead you elsewhere. But I am saying we should take to heart a consideration that maybe I'm here because this is where God has me. And maybe these people around me that are hard to love, God put there. Maybe I should plant some roots and see what kind of love can grow here. 
C.S. Lewis, in his book about four loves, uh, talks about this brotherly affection love, and he just talks about how unique it is. That it's not a discriminating love. That it unites people who would not otherwise think they were made for each other. It brings people together, even socially, who would not otherwise come together unless they were put together. And there's something very God-honoring and Christ-exalting about it. This kind of love is brotherly, familial love. Look around at the people sitting next to you. Literally, just look at them. These people are your brothers and sisters, like it or not. And the way that you ought to think about them and the way that you ought to act toward them is with affection, tenderness. Does that feel strange? It's very strange. Some of the people in the early church, this was their critique against Christianity, is that they were calling people to love this way to the extent that they were even sharing all of their goods with each other. They were like, it's ridiculous. But many, many other people saw that same love and were drawn to Christ because of it. And that's what Jesus said. As you love one another, people will know you're my disciples and they will believe that I'm sent from God. All right, what, what does it look like, this affection? Look at the next part of the verse. Outdo one another in showing honor. This word has to do with perceived value. And so we tend to treat others based on the value that we perceive that they have. So somebody important walks into the room in your eyes, a girl that you like, a boy that you like, a family member, a long-lost friend. You sit up, you get up, you, you go to them, right? Some stranger walks in the room, it doesn't affect you at all. What Paul's saying is assign this value to everyone in your community, that they're important, that they're your brother and sister, that what happens to them affects you, and that you treat them with deference and respect and honor. And Paul's not telling us to honor people because that's just the nice Christian thing to do. He's saying, no, you have a renewed mind, and according to the new way of seeing things, now that you know these people are your family, act accordingly. Show them honor. Go first in showing honor. Don't wait to be honored before you honor. Outdo each other in honor, is what he's saying. Hypocrisy undermines that, you see, because hypocrisy is all about getting honor. But brotherly affection, family love, prefers to honor rather than to be honored. And when that happens to you, like when you just have moments where you realize you prefer for other people to get credit than for you to get credit, you prefer for other people's gifts to be highlighted and for yours' gifts to be highlighted. You, you, you delight in the way that your brothers and sisters are getting attention even when you're not. Like when that happens to you, that's the evidence that God's love has sunk deep down, that you're being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Verse 13. This is just what brotherly love looks like. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, again, this, is, this might be the most radical thing in the whole text because this command moves out of your emotions and gets into your pocketbook and your time. For some of you, being emotionally available, that would be the difficulty here. But for some of you, viewing your time and your money and your things open-handedly as, as meant for the good of others, that's really, really difficult. In the early church community, like in Acts 4, they used the phrase that everyone had everything in common. It wasn't a socialist environment. It was just that it was, I mean, people still own their stuff, right? But it was as if 
what anyone had, everyone had. Like if anyone needed anything, they, they had claim on it. It was beautiful. But even in that community, hypocrisy was lurking. In Acts 5, you see Ananias and Sapphira, and, and this is a couple who had sold their land. People were selling their stuff and contributing to the disciples for the good of the church. And they had sold their land. And they said they had sold it for X amount, let's say $50,000. But actually, they sold it for $100,000. And then when they brought their offering, they brought $50,000, and they were saying, this is, we're giving the whole amount. Now, there were no laws about what you had to give. I mean, they could have just said, we sold it for 100 and we're giving 50 and people would have been like, dang, you're giving half, that's awesome. So why did they lie? Because there's this guy named Barnabas who was like super generous and super encouraging and he was lifted up as the model example in the community and they wanted to be like him. Not actually be like him, they wanted to be thought of as being like him. And so it moved them to this hypocritical love, doing good, giving $50,000 but for the aim of getting applause, getting approval, getting love. And that's not the kind of love that Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about giving love. Ananias and Sapphira died, like on the spot, because of their hypocrisy, which is pretty drastic. It doesn't happen to us, I don't think. But it is interesting, or sobering, I should say, to think that hypocrisy is so heinous such a threat to that community that God would choose to make an example of it in such a drastic way. And their death also points us to Jesus, who died for our hypocrisy. Jesus is the ultimate host. The ultimate act of hospitality was when Jesus came to earth seeking us out, though we were strangers to God, dying for sinners so that all who believe could be welcomed into the family of God. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality even as God has shown it to you in Christ. Now, and let me close with this. There's one just glaring question. You think about this text, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, right? Don't be hypocritical. Abhor what's evil. Cling to what is good. Outdo one another in honor. We didn't even get to some of them. Rejoice. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Be fervent don't lack in zeal. Contribute to the needs of the saints. She seek to show hospitality. It's like, oh my gosh. The glaring question is, how do I do this? And specifically, what if I don't feel like it? Like you're commanding me to feel something. What if I don't feel it? Like what if I looked around at the people around me and I was like, eh. Right? I didn't feel tender affection for them. What do you do then? Verse 11 is the answer. Um, Let me go a little nerdy here for a second. The way that this text is structured, like grammatically and in literary style, it all points to the center, which is verse 11. It's these two commands, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And what's interesting is they're the only two commands that aren't about loving others. So the whole text is about loving others, but the center of it, the fountainhead of it, is about our interaction with God. And it's pointing us to a truth that says we can't love others like this on our own. Agape love is supernatural. Loving you like my family is supernatural. I I cannot, much less, I don't even want to sometimes do it on my own. And so how do you 
How do you feel something that you don't feel? Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The word here is used of boiling water. And just as water can't boil on its own without the heat of the fire, so we can't love one another without the Spirit of God heating our lives up, fanning into flame the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts. When, when water boils, it steams, right? You, you, you see a visible evidence of what's happening to the water. The water is being transformed, literally. And that's what Paul's saying. Be transformed by the love of God to the extent that there is visible evidence of it in the way that you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, how do you do that? How do you open yourself up to the Spirit like that such that it fans into flame God's love for you? Well, the the simple job of the Spirit is to make Christ real to us. And so, he does that in a lot of ways, but he he convicts us of sin, for one. And so we give ourselves to the Spirit by confessing our sin. John says that if we confess our sin, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so we experience the love of Christ, and it is by that means also that we have genuine love, fellowship with one another. Another way the Spirit calls our attention to Christ is by just reminding us of the gospel, reminding us of his love for us. Tim Keller points out about this passage that the the Bible in some ways is the story of the failure of family. I mean, God starts by making a family, and he restarts with other families later, but all throughout, the family fails from the very beginning. We don't get four chapters in until Cain kills his brother Abel. And it's not just them. It continues to go. Ishmael and Isaac are at conflict with each other. And their, their lineage is at conflict with each other. Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives, there's your first problem. Um, they're constantly competing and deceiving. The whole thing is born out of deceit. Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit for death. And it just goes on and on. Jacob and Esau deceiving each other, stealing each other's, stealing his birthright. The whole scripture is God working through families and the families continually failing. But then Jesus comes. In Mark 3, there's a story where Jesus is teaching and it's super crowded. Nobody can get in but his family, his, his mom and his brothers come. And they send people inside for him. And people come in and they say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he says, who are my mothers and my brothers? He says, I tell you, those who do the will of God, my father, those are my mother and my brothers. Jesus is radically redefining our identity. Placing us in the family of God above all else. And the way that he does that is he spills his blood. He purchases us us, by his blood. One quick, quick ending here. Hebrews 12. The, uh, this is what he says. 
He says, you have come to the assembly of the firstborn. And in my footnotes, it just says the church. Isn't that a weird way to think about the church? The assembly of those who are in the firstborn, our eldest brother, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Cain slays his brother Abel, and Abel's blood cries out from the ground to God. Jesus sheds his blood, and his blood cries out, but not for condemnation, but for pardon and grace. That's the love that stirs our hearts, that awakens us, and moves us into action to love one another. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.